0: Or, like, sort of This is a land
1: that prays for a hero.
2: The humor of the entire situation
1: suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on R 1027 fm
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Uh, Bushy's my name, and the regular co-conspirator here, straight from the uh, the hammock and a laptop session, the digital man of luxury, Adam Grubb, is in the house. How art thou, Adam? <laughs> Very well, Bushy. That sounds like a nice way to spend a day.
0: It was, yeah. I um, set up my uh, outdoor office underneath the banana palms, mm. and um, yeah, I, I, I can't s- say... I haven't had better spring days, but it wasn't bad. Pretty lovely, wasn't yeah. it? And uh, joining us
3: on rotation, fresh from a regional planning conference, is the magnificent Kate Dundas. How was that?
2: It was in Canberra. Spacious. Canberra. spacious Canberra. I've never been there before, so it was was nice. It was good. Mm. Um, I learned about rural roads and many other things of regional importance. Mm.
3: Did you bribe anyone or?
2: Just some casual bribes. Nice. A little bit of bribing in the airport.
3: (laughs) Casual (laughs) airport bribing. (laughs) Um, Operating the panel, as always, is the very wonderful Jed McCartney. Now, we're going to dive right into our interview this evening. I'll pass back to Adam now to uh, let us know a bit about it.
0: Oh yeah, we're mixing up the format of the show a little bit, hey, and so we're going to see how this works out. Let's start with our interview, which means we already have in the studio, uh, I guess for this evening, that is Andrew Lucas, and he is someone I've known for quite a while, but uh, someone who is a exile, I would say, from the corporate world, and who these days gets described as a gardening expert with his Geelong-based business, Backyard Harvest, and he's also manager of Geelong Compost. He's wearing the full get-up right now, <laughs> and... Uh, He is co-founder of the Future of Food Conference in Melbourne, which is happening in a few days' time. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Brilliant to have you here. Now, I thought, you know, perhaps I'm interested in this, maybe I feel a little bit of kinship here, but you've had a personal journey to get to where you are today, and I'm quite curious how you got there. So tell us about your old job back in the corporate world.
1: I'm quite curious how you ended up being in a hammock uh, under your <laughs> banana palms in Brunswick I think that's uh... <laughs> the <planet. Yeah. laughs> as the planet heats the bananas that's... head south. Yes well I guess it, it has been a bit of a journey I suppose uh, I, I really started in hospitality so I did sort of have those links with you know I worked at Whole Foods Cafe in Geelong in the mid 90s and learnt to sourdough bake so I had that sort of I guess a bit of a grounding there but um, oh, I ended up studying business and I guess wanting to, yeah, I found marketing really interesting, the sort of the human behavior side of it and the psychology was fascinating. So ended up working as a product manager for an appliance manufacturer and it lasted a few years and it was actually quite interesting because we were doing, um, you know, environmental management systems, we were a company that actually supplied um, other materials to guys like toyota and ford so we had to be environmentally accredited so i had this link all of a sudden i could get the appliance guys to start getting iso fourteen thousand accreditation but i was probably a little more enthusiastic than the the rest of the business so that war pretty thin and after a while you can only sort of hide i think from yeah, you know the way that i guess the true self starts to come out and people start looking at you a bit funny when you're like if we keep selling more stuff every year it 's just more crap out there, <laughs> mm. so um, it doesn 't go over very well when you 're meant to be in a marketing role so
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so i get kind of I guess I was exploring other things and, and sort of stumbled across permaculture as a concept then as well, and I was mm-hmm. like, this is such a great idea why hasn 't anyone told me about this before
2: yep.
0: um, you, you 're one of the early adopters of what 's become known the transition towns movement, which for those that don 't know is a uh, sort of grew out of the permaculture scene, but it was a whole town planning, community-driven type network. Did you have uh, to come to that place? Did you have something like? Did you were you concerned about where the world was heading? Did you have an awakening, or was it just a kind of slow burn for you?
1: Oh, I think it was. It was a bit of an awakening. I don't know the exact time, but for some reason, peak oil really hit home for me. That was, and I know people. Uh, You know, they can have their climate change thing as well where they they, they sort of learn about that, whereas watching Al Gore's movie from years and years ago or or whatever. But I, I remember seeing The End of Suburbia the first time and i'm so like this was a documentary it probably came out around 2004 2000 and, okay yeah so I uh, and i ordered that you know this was sort of pre before you could just get whatever you want because people were uploading stuff on youtube 24 hours after it's released and i was ordering all these all these weird videos from the uk and from the states and watched end of suburbia about 38 times and i'm like oh my god if what they're saying is true my world has turned upside down so do you reckon uh, you could give us a synopsis of what that Films about, or
0: what, or more generally, what you were learning about, if if that's easier.
1: Yeah, I think it was. It was probably when, and we we don't think about it now. What oil's like thirty bucks a barrel again? Back then, it was it was sort of eighty, ninety, and heading north, mm. and that had some big. Uh, like quite physical problems with the energy infrastructure in in the states. There'd been some big gas outages, and so there was actually this sort of oh my god, we're growing too quick and we we can't actually keep up. The US weren't looking at any of their um, you know tight oil that they talk about now. It was all they were they were becoming less and less self-reliant Australia's oil had our local production had peaked in 2000 so it's just all this whole background going why isn't this on the news every week and Mm. and of course so videos like this end of suburbia just run you through it's like being in a classroom where they talk about you know oil is really important and they run through the story about everything's wrapped in plastic did you know everything's wrapped? oh and this is made from oil and like like little Jimmy and Zink in that Simpsons episode and you sort of wake up going why haven't we worshipped this stuff because it's absolutely mm. incredible and we're just burning it and getting rid of it so so I sort of went on this um, bit of a crusade and signed the oil depletion protocol, Richard Heinberg released that, that idea and that book and um, I, I so I basically said, okay, you, you're going to sign up to use less oil every year at the depletion rate, and I kind of took a few people along with me, some friends, and it's a difficult conversation to have because it's like, oh, do you guys want to come around and watch a really depressing video that might potentially mm-hmm. change your life? <laughs> um, but I'm in good company here, so I can talk about it. It's good. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah we've all been through that morbid sense of dread you know and out the other side we might even get to touching a bit later on and sort of how you do cope with those things mentally when you're facing them all the time um and so and then what happens after that? you've seen you've seen the end of suburbia and and yet you restart to reskill and retool a bit
1: Yeah, so I I had an opportunity to manage an eco-hostel up in the Grampians, which kind of, it it didn't tick a lot of those relocalisation boxes because it was actually moving to a regional area where you had to travel further to get your food. But it was managing, uh, you know, a sustainably built building, probably the most, I sort of think, because it's backpackers, it's really low impact, um, highly efficient, not many bathrooms and all that. So it was a a really good chance to go up there and manage that building. It's rammed earth, it's... uh, all passive solar design, really really nice, simple design and quite low cost. Mm-hmm. And there was a chance to be a living manager and actually manage that. So um, left the, the, yeah, the corporate gig there and went up to the Grampings. Lost the digit or so on the – well, maybe not digit, but must have been a significant income <laughs> <laughs> loss. Well, look, you know, I was a product manager in a Geelong appliance manufacturer, so I wasn't exactly like a CEO of BHP or anything. Yeah, okay. but, but, yeah, it was – I mean, I guess that's when you start to sort of work out what's important to you.
3: Mm. Is that um, when you went out and bought matches instead of lighting your cigars with cash?
1: Is that, <laughs> is that, is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We m- <laughs> may have um, upplayed the corporate life that I had a bit more. There, Fair enough. Um, I,
0: I feel like I want to just step back a, l- a little bit. Did you? Because for, for me, when I found out about peak oil, and we didn't really define it, but we talked about it on the show last year, uh, it's just that idea that, throughout history until about the turn of this millennium, we had year on year more oil available to us than the year before. And as a consequence, because this happened over many generations, uh, it almost becomes grandfather wisdom or grandmother wisdom that you're going to have growth in your life forever. And what peak oil says is it being 40% of the world's energy supply and uh, the rest of the fossil fuels make up most of the rest and they follow a similar kind of growth slash depletion curve that and, and sooner
3: or later... They also rely on the presence of oil to that's right. power mining to power extraction as well. So
0: Yeah. Mm. That sooner or later we switch from this growth economy uh, to a descent economy where we have to get used to having a little bit less year on year. And for me, that was like... It's such a simple concept, but it took months of, if not years, of just going through every little assumption in my head about where the future's going to go. And I don't 100% know what's going to happen or anything, but I think it's so highly likely that we're looking at this, the next several generations have to use less and less rather than more and more, that, that, but it's so ingrained in our uh, every little aspect of our assumption um, did you have to go through a similar process, or did it just click for
1: you and everything? look I think changed? at the time I was just gathering so much information and i, I look it hasn 't happened since i haven 't had this capacity to be able to deal with as much information as I could for probably about four or five years and mm-hmm. I, I you know I probably could have done something like got a law degree or um, yeah. you know something <laughs> that was i wouldn 't say useful, but uh, it was incredible, so I sort of had the you know, commentary on it through videos and DVDs and that. Mm. But also, you know, David Holmgren, it may have even been his book, that Principles and Pathway, Pathways Beyond Permaculture, I think it was from 2000, mm. it may have been that book where I actually saw the concept and then went, and went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Mm. Um, but looking up a lot of David's stuff, I think he's, he's a very good communicator in talking. He's kind of got this sort of, you know, thinks in 400 centuries and for him to sort of mm. say... It's actually just our assumptions that every generation will progress more and and technology is inevitable. And and I think to actually just stop and go, oh, wow, that's... Yeah, if you actually look back, did we get here because we're really smart? Like, am I just that much smarter than my great-grandfather and that's why Mm. I can get in a car and, and just... Or... Did we just sort of find this amazing substance that we've really ramped up, and mm. I think that was it it was almost like this realization that maybe the human race isn't we're not really that much clever. we just found these tools that were able to be amplified mm. and and very good
3: exploitable molecular ones that are described as these incredible that our our forebear oh, down the track generators look back and go
1: they burnt that they burnt that <laughs> yeah like and and it's not like they weren't using. Petroleum coming out of the ground for whether it was, you know, the the ark was getting covered in it so it wouldn't sink or whatever, and using it for all sorts of things. But um, to just ramp it up, and I mean, there must have been at some point where a geologist went, "Wow, we're, do you realise how much of this stuff we're, we're absolutely? What's the end game?" And I, I think that's. I've even heard some people getting to the peak or movement quite late, quite innocently saying, "Will the earth?" just cave in because we've taken so much of this (laughs) out of the ground and and you sort of think well it's horse rocks and it's more like a sponge but you think yeah actually when you start talking 85 million barrels a day yeah yeah. it's even on the the planetary scale it's like isn't someone watching this a bit more closely so yeah yeah, so you kind of tie all that in all the big picture stuff with you know Mm. what that means for your your daily life and um yeah. yeah
0: And, and so coming to a realisation like this, uh, what was that like for your personal relationships?
1: Well, I think it was quite tricky. Um, I, look, at the time I was married to uh, a woman who was from Poland, actually, and it's, you know, funnily enough, her family had come over in the 80s. They were the real post-communist sort of frugal livers, typical Europeans, and they kind of lived like i learned so much from them my wife my wife was actually like a lot of first gens were bouncing back going i don't want that i don't want a veggie garden i want to have it all and my parents said i can't have long showers and so there was this um i had a good kinship with uh, with my in-laws actually it was quite interesting but yeah as far as um you know mates and colleagues it was heading slightly a <laughs> different direction mm. yeah <laughs> it can do that yeah.
2: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia.
0: You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we are talking to Andrew Lucas and he's just been telling us a little bit about his uh, fall into sustainability from the rungs of the... Lower lungs of the cor- rungs of the corporate ladder. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't um, even a high fall. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you so looked you fell off a chair. Didn't you you looked yeah. uninjured. <laughs> uh, and, well, do you want to tell us a little bit just uh, briefly before we get on to the conference that Andrew is organising, which is on in a couple of days, a feature of local food conference put on by the Municipal, uh, the municipal <laughs> Association of Victoria. Got there. You, you've been reskilling the last 10 years in uh, permaculture
1: and now you're professional compost maker yeah yeah yes. so how was oh, that 2006 i did my pdc up in that would be a Benico. permaculture design yes, permaculture certificate permaculture design certificate yeah. With uh, Beck up in Bendigo, and and David Holmgren and, and Darren Doherty were there as well. was presenting, so two former guests of the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was great. And I mean, two weeks. You just, uh, I can see why they do that format. And I've looked at a lot of other courses since, and I think it's a, what is it, seventy-two hours. It, you really do, um, as I say, you get immersed in the lifestyle. But it was at a um, a fairly rugged scout camp, mm-hmm. and after you know the first couple of days, it's a bit of a a bit of a shock and then all of a sudden you're just like yeah I want to I don't want to have a shower I want to just have a swim in the dam and mm. it was really good it was quite a brutal time because we had that you know it was a very significant drought mm. at the time so um it was a lot of focus on water but that so you had was really dust bathe. yeah you dust <laughs> bathe, like <laughs> hens um but it was <laughs> I think that was rather, I guess, that really sort of skilling, you know, and mm. and, um, and just the, the people you meet, and the connections, and that led on to a job with the Kitchen Garden Foundation. Stephanie Alexander. Yeah, Stephanie Alexander, and, yeah. and nothing like teaching kids what to do to actually make sure, I better know this stuff myself. <laughs> so that was um, a really great crash course in, you know, I guess, sort of small-scale horticulture and... And those sorts of things. And it's just gone on from there. I've basically just sort of been teaching myself and doing courses and another advanced permaculture design course with, with David Holmgren down at Apollo Bay and, yeah, yeah, just sort of kept it going since then.
0: Cool. Well, we talked before the break about uh, how learning about peak oil, which seems, you know, it's dropped a little bit off the the public radar and in, in the last couple of years as oil prices went down, but... Um, I'd say is still a very real phenomenon that the world has to, will be dealing with. If I mean, arguably, we've already passed the peak in conventional uh, oil production almost ten years ago, if not more now. Mm. Uh, these are the these kind of perspectives you are bringing, and you're bringing guests, including David Holmgren, uh, to the uh, future of local food conference, which is on Thursday and Friday.
1: Yeah. So a, a few years back, a, a friend of mine. Patrick Blampede, who's done a bit of work with the permaculture institute and we i 'd been doing some work with the municipal association they had a so that 's the umbrella group for local councils in Victoria mm. and they had a future of local government conference and we they 'd been really supportive with the transition town movement I think they saw that as a they, they really wanted community led initiatives to be the way that local planning is done and they saw transition towns as this great you know all encompassing sort of um, Um, I guess, focus on relocalisation. They found that really attractive. And I I suppose as you know, oil has dropped in price, there's been a bit of steam come out of the the peak oil narrative. Mm -hmm. There was a real focus on food. Food still had this energy. It kept going and Mm -hmm. people were interested, whether they had money or didn't have money, There was food was a a relevant topic. And and basically we just sort of coined this term, well, there's a future of local government conference, why don't we have a future of local food conference? Because it was something that I was really personally interested in, like what will local food look like? And so we had the first one in... 2014 had one last year 2015 and and this one will be the third and it's really just about i mean it is focused i guess at policy makers and local government but we've also got community members as well um that are welcome to come along we had almost half community members in the audience last year and it's really just sort of i guess opening up the topic and and local government has so much to do with local producers and as far as land use Um, And, yeah, it just seems like a a really natural sort of conference to have. Mm.
2: Mm. It's really interesting what local government and state and federal government can do to affect our food systems. But when it comes to growing our own food, uh, what local government can do is really interesting. And what barriers local government can put in place is also very interesting. (laughs) So I've recently been thinking about what we can do for the planning scheme to help growers and community gardens and urban agriculture happen more easily across the city because at the moment you need a planning permit, for example, to put in a community garden. It's not defined in the planning scheme, so planners don't know how to assess that type of application. And all those things make it expensive and difficult for people to grow food. Um, Through the conference over the past couple of years, what's local government's reaction been to increasing the amount of food grown in the city i mean there's all the issues about peri-urban expansion and stuff but i'm talking more about retrofitting the dense urban environment
1: look i think uh, look, we're probably a bit spoiled because we come in contact with the belie- the true believers mm-hmm. and they're probably already on board and the councils that aren't represented are the ones that Probably need, um, I guess, you need to hear that the message a little more. Uh, I, I mean, it, it is quite tricky where you sort of look at the um, the work Shona Candy's doing, and sort of looking at wow, where's our food actually come from, and, and coming from. A, a former guest of the show, people will remember who does uh, f-
0: computer scale modelling of whole systems of food uh, food growing and distribution, and um, has some challenging things to say for for a growing city of Melbourne
1: and that's expanding into our own food bowl and and I think the challenge is probably trying to with existing areas where it is retrofitting it's it's almost acknowledging that hey this is not just a cute idea and this is actually really really relevant and really sensible and and look I my background now is in agricultural compost I know I I used to know a little bit about how horticulture and and Broadacre works, and the more I know, the more it makes me want to go back to. Hey, I want to control the soil. I want to control the inputs. I, I sort of know a lot more about what's happening in, um, you know, farm farmland that where stuff is produced for the market, not necessarily for people that you care about and you want them to eat nutrient dense food. So, mm. um, I think that you know the, the smaller little landholdings we've got to go, are going to become more important, and we've got that control, even though there's that. Uh, that's counterintuitive because, hang on, you're in the city and you've mm. got lead poisoning and all these sorts of things, but I think it's actually, you, you do have a lot more control. Mm.
2: Um, and it also has to be easy. It has to be an easy decision for people to make to want to grow their own food, mm. to have easy access to land, to have people to grow food with because it's hard and you need to, it needs to be fun. Mm. Um, yeah, and to have easy access to tools because it's also fairly expensive to start growing your own food. Um
1: yeah, and I, look, I, I think most progressive councils and what's a progressive council, I don't know, but they, I, I think it's, it's been seen as, hey, it ticks all these boxes because you end up getting good environmental health outcomes, you get mm. community development outcomes. So once councils realise this, they end up getting all of the pillars that are, that are involved. People are like, hey, we can we can tag team up and, and actually tick a few boxes and get some projects up together it's interesting i was working at the surf coast shire 2008 and we had a um aries inlet down there wanted a community garden at the time local planning laws meant you couldn't plant a lemon tree in aries inlet because it's incredibly nativist they even though it hasn't always been that way they really want to keep it native because that's what it's like now and we had a community group that were interested in a in starting a community garden uh, in that council it was a really small council so we worked qu- literally closely with the community development guys and all of a sudden it's like these guys have got all the tools yeah. we're sustainability people we don't really know how to go out and talk to people and you know that's that's a cracker of a community garden now since then mm. they've had one at Anglesey, Aries Inlet they're just popping up and that's purely because you've got a, a council that are that are interested in it so the, the barriers are really about Hey, do you guys think this is serious? And uh, and they see that the positive outcomes. It's definitely, um, you know, it's a no-brainer. It's a yeah. no-brainer.
3: I feel like those, bar- like all of those barriers. Like, yes, tools are expensive. It can be difficult to do on your own. And those, sorts. I feel like all these councils need to listen to this show. Like we, we kind of, not but we are. Like slowly but surely, we're addressing these things. We talked yeah. to, um, to folks from the tool library, and we and talked about all these different things. And if you're talking about strategies, like. Maybe that's something. I don't know. It's so easy to fix. It's 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 so incredibly
2: easy to fix. And it's infuriating how flipping difficult it is to actually roll it out. Yeah. Because people don't talk to each other and don't collaborate. And you find the same people hitting the same mistakes over and over again. But the solutions to all of this, it's easy. Exactly
1: right. (laughs) Look, one of the motivations with doing a conference is you get this capacity to... (laughs) publicly shame municipalities <laughs> because you can actually say, you know, oh, you've been telling me this is impossible, but this council's done it, this council's mm. done it. These guys have been doing it in the UK for 20 years and it's, I think that's it's almost the way that then you start to go, oh, oh you can do something now because you, you don't want to be the last one in the pack. But, uh, I mean, that's almost, almost part of it, you know. Can um, I throw a little question without notice at that? Um, you may or may not have the answer.
3: Are the... Are the the councils out there who might, like say, have a, 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 a less um, economically stable socio-demographic, are they the ones that are getting better at it because there's a frugality and a determination and a capacity
1: or am I right off the mark? I mean, is it the wealthy suburbs who are doing better at it because they can piff money at it? Look, I, I, after being involved in the space for a while, I'd probably say that the, the Anglo wealthy suburbs are doing it because it's kind of cool mm. and the... Uh, New Australian based suburbs are doing it because you've always grown food in your culture and that's what you do. Yeah. So, and we've seen it in Geelong. The first olive trees that were grown as street tree plantings were done illegally by. The, the Greek guys and the Hungarian guys down at Port Arlington because the, you know yeah. they, they just did it and now the city greater Geelong tree planting guys and this is probably not public information but it doesn't matter they <laughs> they sort of said yeah we've got this we actually know olives can grow for 20 years without damaging underground piping so we're planting them in Bell Park why are you planting them in Bell Park Ah. Oh, because it's got the largest croatian polish german and italian population in geelong and we know the residents won't pull the trees out because they see them as valuable whereas Mm. if you if you plant those in the more anglo suburbs Mm. people go oh i want a gum tree so Mm. it's incredible i mean i I think that's you know that's been my experience that yeah yeah it's it's all about culturally based and I, i guess we're we're probably getting better at that yeah
2: I I agree with that, but I also think it makes a massive difference to the individuals within council. It's often not council general council policy but if you've got a really motivated individual that works in community development or sustainability or urban design or anything and they're really keen to push that agenda and get work with communities to build gardens then you see things happening
1: yeah that definitely and i've seen it in other areas of sustainability where it's an individual officer and they're their, they're the professionals they're the guys that have studied and they're interested in it enough to work in it they will do far more than a councillor mm-hmm. because they're not they're not worried about been popular they're not Mm. they're not elected so a a good local government officer is worth their weight in gold and unfortunately you know they're not always given the because if you meet a bad one it can really taint your view of local government but the good ones are great
2: Mm -hmm. and there's lots of them
1: yeah too right Mm -hmm. so andrew we'll give out details
0: for the for the conference at the end of the show but we've got a couple of minutes before we have to piff you yep do you want? Is there anything that you're partic- Do you want to tell us about a couple of speakers or anything that you're particularly looking
1: forward to? Look, there's a couple that, and, and I haven't had as much to do with it this year. I'm going to MC it, but I haven't had as much to do with the guests. But there's a guy, um, Jason Gunn, who started the Oliver's franchise, and, oh, yeah. like, and I remember having these discussions with David Holmgren, you know, ten years ago. And David, have we have we got to the land that we wanted? If Coles is sourcing local organic food from people's backyards and and he's sort of like, yeah, I, I, systems don't work like that. They really just – the juggernaut continues on and the wake actually produces all of the, the new little things that pop up. And so this Oliver's, you know, these guys, that Oliver's Fresh Food on the or Real Food, it's service stations where you've got a McDonald's and a KFC and, and then you've got Oliver's as the – it's like I, I kind of get what they're doing. They've got all the books that I'm interested in. But it's and they serve beans instead of fries. And so to me I'm interested in hearing him speak because Mm. it's kind of like can you be Yeah. You're kind of organic and you're saying all the right stuff, but then you're, you're in a service... Ra- I don't know. So Yeah, yeah so I kind of like the things that are a bit... You know, you guys always talk about what's challenged you mm. this week, and that's one of those ones mm. where I'm like, I just don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. So it'll be good to meet him and see if he's sort of the real deal or if he's just very, very clever. Yeah,
3: <laughs> or both.
0: <laughs> you are listening to a Triple R podcast...
2: Podcast,
0: et cetera. <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone that subscribed during our radiothon edition. Um, it was fantastic. We were quite humbled by the response. On the other hand, last week probably we lost destroyed a few. all that faith. Lost a lot of good faith because <laughs> what we did is we devoted a whole episode to trying to unravel the serious question of why does so much environmentally themed music suck? Because frankly most of it does and what does that mean for us like what hope is there for us to overcome the environmental challenges we need everything working for us and if we don't have art that lifts us up pushes us in the right direction and doesn't sound like crap in the process how the hell are we going to save this world and so we we tried to ask and answer the question Mostly what we end up doing was playing some really bad music yeah. and we feeling should, a bit ill in the belly. We should explain it. We're not about to revisit any of it. No, no, no. Don't, don't switch off. We're not going to play any yeah, yeah. rubbish music. Don't um, switch to Fox. But we thought we... It did actually get our thinking juices flowing a little bit, didn't it? And yep. And it's worth revisiting. And... Uh, we thought we 'd just ha- continue the conversation, but this time really think seriously rather than just taking a piss mm. and uh, about why d- why is so much how do make music to so good and how by do we the react way to these issues hat, hat tip to the incredible Bob knob, who, if you listen to superfluity after the show last week, they played a song by Zillanova, his band, um, which is about the environment, and it is a heart terror it is an incredible soul song, and also hat tip to to Charlie, who came, Charlie McGee, who came in and played a ukulele track, who did a fantastic job of playing something very technically incredible and uh, uplifting and bouncy, but sort of a, more of a song for kids, I guess. So we we didn't actually find anything that was really uplifting and um, and kind of for adults that was emotionally satisfying, because Bob's track was very much bit depressing in fact the name of it is suicide <laughs> indeed indeed so w- w- let's let's shed some more light on this what what were you thinking about bushy well you know I, you know at the same time that i
3: was playing in bands through high school and, and into my late teens and early 20s um i was also sort of going through that um you know expanding awareness of the problems of the world and it was actually i was trying to think about the time frame of this particular conversation and i think it was my cousin he's about seven years younger than me so he was about 14 and he's always been something of a genius, um, an incredible achiever, in fact. But I was sitting around one day and I was railing off my head about McDonald's and Shell and all this stuff that had done, all these things, the pamphlets and brochures I'd read from friends who'd bought these things home from Melbourne Union, that sort of stuff. And he pointed out that you know we're sitting at his place, you know, July, August, and here I am knocking down an orange juice. And he goes, uh, "That juice has probably come from Brazil, you know." I said, "Well, so what?" And he said, "Well." The Brazilians that are picking that juice for you, they're probably getting some pretty shitty deals and they're probably losing their their land and their culture and their home to juice barons. And that's a heavily traded commodity. This kid knew about commodity trading and shit at like 14. And I had this real thing of like, oh, fuck off. Like, no, you can't tell me that. Because uh, you just can't, you're only 14, buggy. And I, I, what I realised at that point was how self-righteous, how incredibly self-righteous I'd been for a long, long time. And s- some friends of mine borrowed my old Holden station wagon one day and uh, they needed it and they, they gave it back. and I found a receipt on the floor they'd been through the McDonald's drive thing and I, I tore them to pieces, like, how dare you do that? And they said, if you're serious, you won't even have that car. And this self-righteous thing... So that part of the reason, perhaps, that environmental music sucks mm. is because you inherently have to to make something impassioned and you know, fired up. You're probably just going to be a hypocrite anyway. We talked a bit about the hypocrisy, but um, that self-righteousness always makes for bad art, doesn't right. it? In any form, doesn't it? I
0: th- you might be right. I don't know because I can think of cases where it's... Um it's social justice issues. Like, yeah. let's let's say it's uh, a race thing and it's like, well, yeah, I've been oppressed f- and my ancestors have been oppressed mm. for hundreds of years. Mm. There's, there's some justified self-righteousness there, mm. which when that comes through, that can be a powerful element of a song. Absolutely. But when you apply it to the environmental scene mm. and it's just uh, someone who's taken the perspective of like, I'm holier than thou mm. because... Uh, I don't eat McDonald's or whatever. It somehow it becomes much more painful, doesn't it?
3: It does, and and but there's a thing that you and I were chatting about in in, in relation to that is the scope. You know, it's, it's actually much easier to sit with someone and mm. hear their story, be it oppression or um, poverty or, or anything that they've gone through, and actually relate because you're a person listening to a person. Yeah. But you can't be a forest or a or a salt marsh or a or a, a prairie. That's it I guess and yeah. you
0: can't you can't understand what it might be like for it's, it's a shame, though isn't it because there's something to be said for taking the perspective of you know if it's it might not be you that's being affected but if we're not allowed to somehow take the perspective of nature or of another oppressed people and be able to express that in a way that makes good art that's that's we're, we're in trouble. I d- yeah. yeah, but it might be. It might not be possible. I don't know. Mm.
3: I think we. I mean, that's the thing that I kept thinking about in preparation for last week's abomination, mm. was <laughs> that when you think about like you know political protest and social justice and and all those amazing songs that are railing against oppression and so forth, they are amazing. So a lot of mm. art over the years and music, especially for, you know, and in, in the, the genres of music that I really love, you know, bands like Rage Against the Machine and System of a Down yeah. really, really were bands that got me fired up and yeah. and and more active
0: anger and, being the primary emotion and there's, there's no reason you can't feel anger for what's happening to the environment so do you,
2: who do you feel angry uh, about us like do yeah, you feel well, anger towards just... the man who's oppressing you through making you work in a crappy job mm. or do you feel angry towards oh myself because um i at mcdonald's
0: yeah did you you should. Um Well we did yeah, we discussed that a little bit last week too. It's not a third party that we're angry even though some of it is, you can be angry at Monsanto, but we all are a bit hypocritical just by living in you know, in this culture where you have just to just by
2: living, issue. having babies, everything yeah. everything.
0: Um, but but Bushy mentioned the thing that I was that, that I was thinking about and it's this thing called scope insensitivity. And there's a quote attributed to Stalin If one man dies of hunger, that's a tragedy If millions die, that's just statistics.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: Probably said it in a Russian accent, (laughs) if not language. Um, (laughs) But this is scientific work has gone into this and um, some Canadian researchers asked uh, householders how much they would pay to save 2,000 or 20,000 or 200,000 birds from dying in oil ponds and... No matter how many birds there were, supposedly, it was all made up, um, they were dying, uh, how mu- they would contribute about 80 bucks each. Didn't matter. And uh, there's a lot of evidence into this that emotionally we don't have the ability to multiply. Mm. So, you hear a personal story of a kid with lead poisoning, to use an example that you, uh, Andrew was mentioning earlier, and... Uh, well, that's that's a motive in a way that, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, to help this kid. Um, but you look at it across the whole city or nation and it, you might, even if you know that there are actual kids there, there's not any more emotion we, we don't respond to it more emotionally and in fact potentially less as soon as it's depersonalized well, maybe it's
2: because you feel like you can't do anything about it if it's one person you'd be like i can go there and help yeah but if it's hundreds true. of it's people you're like, it's too overwhelming i don't even know where to start i'm just gonna yeah. go to bed
0: it's that compassion fatigue or caring fatigue type phenomenon and if we were truly calibrated human beings to the scale of what we're talking about with climate change and peak oil that andrew mentioned about it is just incomprehensibly big like that we anything that you care about multiply it by a million yeah (laughs) think of the worst thing you know like a sibling dying well now uh, imagine the if you take worst case environmental scenarios and or or let's say you know 300 years in the future there is no human race left at all that's, that's a catastrophe, which even if you only cared one thousandth the amount of you do for a stranger as you do for your brother or sister, mm. the multiplication should overwhelm you because there's seven billion people. So you should care about that a thousand, you know, a million times more than losing. losing. But we can't. We don't have the capacity for it. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's and, part of that. Just the sheer weight of numbers. Uh, you know, what
3: two hundred years ago? What was the Earth population? Two hundred years ago is a tiny blip, really. I mean, that's about that seven generation mindset that Native Americans you know, are attributed with with planning around. And so, in that seven generation step, mm. we've gone from small, isolated, you know, cities and things like that around the world to this insane, like. <laughs> Thing that we are is humanity
0: of of seven billion people. Hmm.
2: Well, so relating that back to music,
0: well, yeah. So how do you how do you write a song that does justice to to those emotions and the scale that you should feel them when we I struggle never want to, to hear have that, that song. capacity never, ourselves? Ever,
2: never play that song to me.
0: Yeah. See, I, that
2: sounds like a terrible song.
0: I mean, I occasionally do feel find myself. Um, feeling a little emotional about that big picture stuff. Not in the true proportions that you should. Mm. But uh, it did make me think, though, that the fact that we almost taking the piss out of how bad we think environmental music is, maybe that's because we are not ourselves sufficiently advanced enough to feel these emotions and the people that like it and think we're being prats, mm. maybe you are more emotionally advanced than us. And hat tip to
3: you. Anyone that can cope with that Miley Cyrus song last week <laughs> is emotionally something.
0: Yeah, very resilient. To, yes,
3: yes. Um.
2: And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Three Triple R.
3: Yes, Triple R is where you are. We're going to kick into the wrap-up for this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Thank you, Andrew, for coming in. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons. Katie,
0: awesome to see you. Adam, we've got a guest next week to mention quickly. We do. We're going to be talking the future of fire. And and by that, I mean rocket stoves, which are really simple DIY ovens, um, because it turns out for the last million years we've been making fire wrong. We're going to tell you how to do it properly. We're going to have the wonderful Joel Meadows on the phone, who is an expert in the field. Awesome, Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, please have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.